Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. ...found themselves scattered to the corners of the realm. At the end of November, while York sought to destroy her family's future at Westminster, Margaret was encamped at Harlock Castle with her brother-in-law Jasper, Earl of Pembroke. The countryside was fraught with danger, and counterfeit letters reached her regularly, forged things in King Henry's hand, begging her to bring Prince Edward south. They were delivered without any sign of the secret code Margaret had arranged for Henry to add to his letters if he were captured, so the Queen gave them no credence. All the same, the Yorkist would soon be coming for her and her son, realizing that she would remain the focus of opposition. To use the pithy phrase of one chronicler, it was clear to the whole kingdom that she was more wittier than the king. Employing that wit to good effect, Margaret decided to risk the freezing western seas in order to escape from Wales. On a cold day in late November, she took Prince Edward by ship to Scotland. They arrived in the Northern Kingdom around December the 3rd, and went to stay at the haunting Gothic Collegiate Church of Lincluden, which stood on a bend in the River Nith, just outside Dumfries. They stayed under the protection of Mary of Gelders, widow of recently deceased King James II of Scotland, and regent to the nine-year-old King James III. The two women found that they had much in common. Soon after Margaret reached Lincluden, she learned that her ally Henry, Earl of Northumberland, was raising an army in the north of England, riding through their enemy's estates with sword and fire, raising what hell they could, while spreading rumours about the Duke of York, and attempting to stir the common people to rebellion. This, Margaret realised, could be the basis of a force to strike back against the usurpers. From Scotland she managed to contact Henry, Duke of Somerset, Thomas, Earl of Devon, and their capable military supporter, Sir Alexander Hody, a veteran soldier of the West Country. All were based hundreds of miles south, but she instructed them to find their way, by whatever means they could, to Hull, to muster for the counterattack. Their party included Andrew Trollope, the treacherous Calais captain whose defection from the Yorkist side had resulted in the rout of Lutford Bridge. The Queen wrote in Prince Edward's name to the City of London, denouncing York as a horrible and falsely forsworn traitor, mortal enemy to my lord, to my lady, and to us, with an untrue pretensed claim to the crown, and asking for the citizens' aid to free King Henry from the Duke's malicious grasp. To put together any sort of army in the grip of winter, much less move it across a dozen counties along wet and freezing mud tracks, was ambitious to the point of desperation. 
So when news of Northumberland's mobilisation reached York Circle in London, they were taken quite by surprise. The prospect of losing control of government for a third time was enough to spur York urgently to arms. As soon as details of Margaret's movements were known, York and Salisbury set out from the southeast to put down the insurgency and bring in the Queen. Edward, Earl of March, went to Wales to face down an army rampaging there under Jasper Tudor. By December the 21st, York had reached Sandal Castle near Wakefield in West Yorkshire, a large stone fortress with turreted curtain walls encircling a fearsome keep on top of a motte overlooking the Calder Valley. The weather and the speed at which they had set off to defend the north meant that York and Salisbury were sorely outmanned by the rapidly assembled partisans of the Queen. York and his supporters spent a meagre Christmas inside Sandal Castle. With supplies thin and their enemies overrunning the adjoining lands, some camped outside the walls, and others raiding from their base in the nearby castle of Pontefract. On December the 30th, a foraging party was attacked by Somerset's men and Devon's men, and York decided to strike back. Why he did so is unclear. Possibly he was drawn out by a ruse concocted by his erstwhile Captain Andrew Trollope, or else he believed a Christmas truce to be in place. It may have been given to believe that he had 8,000 men arriving mustered by John Lord Neville, an elder stepbrother of Salisbury, although this Lord Neville had hitherto been a staunch supporter of the Queen's party and was an unlikely turncoat. Whatever his reasons, York rode out of Sandal, seemingly believing that he would be able to push back the substantial forces of his enemies. He wasn't. He was barely out of the castle when soldiers bore down on him from four sides. Somerset, Northumberland, and Neville attacked him head-on. Exeter and Lord Roos closed in from either flank, and Lord Clifford closed the trap, preventing a retreat back into the castle. York was outnumbered perhaps five to one by men who not only opposed his political ambition, but for the most part genuinely loathed him. As a much later writer would describe it, he was environed on every side like a fish in a net or a deer in a buckstall. After an hour of heavy fighting, the Duke was overcome. Seeing the situation becoming impossible, he sent his son Rutland to flee. Rutland ran for Wakefield Bridge, the proud nine-arched stone crossing of the River Calder. On the far side stood the Chantry Chapel of St. Mary the Virgin. The seventeen-year-old Earl may have hoped to throw himself inside and seek sanctuary, but he fell agonizingly short. Lord Clifford had chased him from the battlefield and caught up with him on or near the bridge. He was surrounded. Clifford stepped forward, cursed the young man, and told him to prepare for his death as your father slew mine. Then, as pleas for Rutland's life rang out from all around, including, it was later claimed, from the boy's tutor and chaplain, Robert Aspel, who stood by his side, Clifford drew his dagger and thrust it through his heart. The blood debt of St. Albans had been paid. Truly, the son had suffered for the sins of the father.
The father, however, was faring little better. Hemmed in on all sides, York was trying to fight his way back to the castle. But it was too late. He was seized in the scramble of battle. Sir James Luttrell of Devonshire was later named as his captor, and dragged away. His helmet was removed, and a rough paper crown placed on his head. Then Richard, Duke of York, the man who would have been many things, including a king, was paraded in front of the contemptuous soldiers of his foes, and beheaded. Many more Yorkists died on the battlefield that day. Besides York and Rutland, Salisbury's son, Sir Thomas Neville, was also taken and killed. Salisbury himself had escaped from Sandal Castle, and was attempting to escape north, but he made it little farther than Rutland. During the night, the sixty-year-old Earl was captured and brought back to enemy headquarters at Pontefract Castle. The next day, he was taken out and executed in public. Soon after, the heads of the four dead Yorkists were sent to the city of York to be displayed upon the Micklegate. There, the Duke of York's dead eyes stared down at the passing citizens, his paper crown still jammed down on his bloodied forehead. Years of fractious politics and growing personal enmity had come to this. At present, things have come to such a pass that acts of vengeance have been perpetrated on both sides, wrote the papal legate and Yorkist supporter Bishop Copini to one of his associates who was camped with the Queen. Margaret, Prince Edward, and their allies had finally vanquished their greatest opponent, but the king remained in the hands of Warwick and Edward, Earl of March. The realm was now truly split, the queen's party now as much of a faction as the Yorkists. From this point we can properly refer to them as Lancastrians after the Duchy of Lancaster, King Henry's private duchy, which had belonged to kings of England since his grandfather Henry IV was king. The Duchy of Lancaster was a source of Henry's private power rather than his public authority, which had finally evaporated. Neither side seemed strong enough to defeat the other. And while... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.